thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. We are excited to welcome Associate Editor Professor Leslie Kay, who will be discussing her recently published review titled COVID-19 and Olfactory Dysfunction, a Looming Wave of Dementia with Editor-in-Chief Professor Nino Ramirez. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much. And uh, Leslie, thanks so much for participating on our podcast series today. You know, your topic, COVID-19 and olfactory dysfunction, a looming wave of dementia will definitely create a lot of interest. And so when we do our discussions, let's let's have, you know, both the, the expert neuroscientists in mind, but maybe also the, the general listeners. So yeah. they kind of like see what's coming at them. Perhaps we'll see. But before before we begin, uh, let me just introduce you to to our listeners. So, so Leslie is an associate editor, as Jamie mentioned, uh, for the Journal of Neurophysiology. She's a professor also at, for psychology at the University of Chicago. And Leslie obtained her bachelor's degree in liberal arts from St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then uh, she went on to get her PhD at UC Berkeley in biophysics where she worked with the late uh, Walter J. Freeman, uh, who is a theoretical neuroscientist and who inspired Leslie to work on olfactory uh, perception. And I can only imagine that this must have been an amazing experience because uh, Walter Freeman is really a visionary and laid an important conceptual framework uh, for the link between olfaction, rhythms, and higher brain function and perception. So after her PhD, she did a postdoc with Gilles Laurent at Caltech, and in Jill's lab, uh, Leslie studied the encoding of olfactory information in the olfactory bulb. And then when she uh, became an assistant professor and then full professor at you know, Chicago, she returned really to the important question how olfaction controls rhythms and brain functions. And she focused on the mechanism and function associated with intra and interregional oscillatory cooperativity uh, between the olfactory and the limbic systems. And for the listener who doesn't know what rhythmic oscillations have to do with olfaction, I can only tell you that generating rhythmic activity is a fundamental property of the brain, critical for many brain functions from wakefulness to sleep. You know, while you listen to me, your brain is generating a lot of different rhythms and uh, it's important for perception, learning, memory, breathing and walking. And at the core of these rhythmic activities is actually olfactory input. So. Leslie has studied for many years the important link between olfaction, higher brain function, and emotion, and which was really one of the reasons why she became so alarmed when she learned, and we all learned, that COVID causes temporary loss of smell in approximately 77% of the COVID patients. And uh, even more, it causes permanent olfactory problems in approximately 15 million people worldwide. Okay, Leslie, I can imagine that many listeners tune in because they are interested in COVID-19. Your title makes them worried. So why don't you begin by discussing first how SARS-CoV-2, this virus, enters the cells and why the olfactory bulb is such an important target of the virus. And then, sorry, also make it more complex, but as you describe in your article, the uh, olfactory bulb is pretty complex, composed of diverse cells, uh, sets of cells, and what do we know about these cells that are targeted by the cells and how could this viral attack then lead to the loss of olfaction and what could be the mechanism behind the temporary loss of olfaction? Sorry, yeah. bombarding you right there. No, that's a, that, that's a lot right there, but uh, you know, I'll start with, first of all, thank you. Um, 
I feel a, a little bit on a mission to talk to people about this problem because it, it's really concerning. You know, in March of 2020, uh, I don't know if I could say expletives on the air, but um, here I, 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 I uttered a few of them when I saw at first that that people were losing their sense of smell. And, you know, losing your sense of smell is bad, but the, the things, because it decreases quality of life, it, you know, can, can make, uh, you know, more likely to get food poisoning and other kinds of dangerous situations. You can't smell smoke. Um, and it just, you know, decreases general enjoyment of, of food and, and all qualities of life. But more important, it influences cognitive structure. And so I'll first talk about how the virus causes anosmia, what, how we think anosmia happens, and then what I think is happening after that. Um, so the fast anosmia that you know we all noticed at the beginning where somebody woke up and all of a sudden they couldn't smell or could barely smell. And then a few weeks later after recovering from a case of COVID, smell came back. And so th those are unpleasant experiences but not as concerning as long-term uh, loss of smell. So the, the, so the way it happens, we think, is that the virus enters the cells that support the sensory epithelium up in the, up in the far recesses of the nose. So this, they're called sustentacular cells and the ensheathing cells around the olfactory nerve that goes into the brain. Now, if it had been, if we had found that the olfactory sensory neurons uh, contain the ACE2 receptors and other promoters that the virus needs to enter cells, we would be in much worse shape. So fortunately, those do not, the, the olfactory sensory neurons that dangle their cilia in your in the mucus in, in your nose and, and are, bind um, odors uh, have their other ends, their axonal ends directly in cortex in the olfactory bulb. So, so this was a concern. If they were infected, that this would really be a super highway into the brain. They are not, as far as we know. But um, th so the, the virus knocks out olfaction by a number of different mechanisms in the periphery. Most of those have to do with inflammation, we think, but also some changes in um, gene regulation of, of receptor uh, of receptor genes um, on a longer term, but you know the quick loss of, of smell is probably due to inflammation in the epithelium. So this you know early on uh, MRI studies showed a kind of swelling that closed off the the cavity where the sensory epithelium is, so that you know one way of decreasing smell is air just can't get to the receptor neurons. And if you can't get air in there, then you can't get smell in there and you can't smell. Um, mm -hmm. Other types of inflammation are inflammation of the sustentacular cells and you know the, the supporting cells in the sensory epithelium, which would impair in various ways the sensory neurons ability to bind odors and also to function normally. And that mm -hmm. could it could kill those cells as well just because of the in inflammatory process can be, you know, it can't, it fights, in, it fights the virus, but it can also kill cells in the process. Good news though, in the olfactory epithelium regenerates the sensory neurons, they turn over all the time throughout life. And that's really evolutionarily adaptive. Um, you don't want to keep cells around 
that can easily take things across the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. so they're replaced over and over and over throughout life. The timing of that varies dependent on species, and there's a lot of disagreement about exactly how long that is. But you have lots of stem cells in your nose that can create new sensory neurons. So that eased my mind for a mm -hmm. while. <laughs> But, yeah, I think it's very important for, for also yeah. the listener to realize that really the olfactory bulb is is one of the areas in your brain that that can regenerate and, and does turn over all the time, which yeah. is um, a fascinating property. Mm -hmm. Not so much the olfactory bulb, the sensory neurons in the nose oh, regenerate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. in, in rodents, you know, rats and mice, we know that we actually do grow new cells. They do grow new cells in the olfactory bulb. These are the small GABAergic interneurons uh, yeah, in okay. cells. Uh, it's it's unclear whether humans do as well, but they might. There's some evidence that they do. And certainly the bulb does appear to get bigger in some cases and certainly get smaller if you stop mm -hmm. getting olfactory input. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so, so do you think there are also other routes, uh, basically how this, this virus got in into the, uh, yeah, so, into the brain? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not, it's thank goodness, not taking the super highway through the olfactory nerve being, you know, infecting those neurons and then just being deposited straight into cortex. But the fascicles that of nerve bundles that cross just a few millimeters from your nose into the olfactory bulb are surrounded by ensheathing cells. And these cells actually have receptors that the virus can, can use to enter them. Um, in addition, simple uh, cerebrospinal fluid in the, in the nerve bundle can carry stuff into, into the brain. And, and you know that's always a threat with any virus that infects the nose. But you know, evolution is smart and and evolved, you know, pretty robust immune response in the olfactory bulb to protect us because this really is one of the weakest links in the brain for pathogens. Um, it's also, it also can be exploited, you know, there are nasal uh, drug de delivery. There's a, a really cool little sort of semi-isolated blood supply that connects the epithelium and the olfactory bulb but since SARS-CoV-2 also weakens blood vessels, this can also be a way to pass uh, path, uh, the virus into the, into the olfactory bulb. Mm -hmm. In the olfactory bulb, glial cells, astrocytes, microglia, um, you know, can get infected. Um, I don't believe, I cannot find any reference that says that mitral cells also, have ACE2 receptors. I don't know if they do, but there mm -hmm. is evidence that, you know, of virus in autopsy seen in the olfactory bulb and evidence that there's um, vascular degeneration specifically in the olfactory bulb due to, you know, proteins that are expressed when this degeneration um, occurs or, or gene expression that signals this degeneration. Um, I think also that, the olfactory that... Bulb. yeah. And and I think the the important concept is also that it's not necessarily that the virus has to enter the brain, but yeah. it's, it's really the triggering of an in, inflammatory response. And yeah. I know this, for example, you know, like in the lung, you know, like you have an inflammation in the lung, the vagal nerve can basically respond immediately, and your brain 
within minutes will have a cytokine storm and cause all sorts of reactive oxygen species. Yeah. And so I think the, the simple concept that the virus needs to enter to cause the problems, I think is, is yeah. a little, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And the inflammatory response is, like I said, really robust there and it has to be to protect the brain, but it can also kill cells, um, which, you know, is, is bad. Um, okay. But it can be worse because it's the olfactory bulb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and which is really the next question in a way, you know, yeah. why is a loss of olfaction so scary? And what do we know about it, viral invasions and implication for other degenerative diseases such as, uh, you know, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson, yeah. and what we, have we learned from other flus, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there's been a theory around and it used to be considered kind of a crackpot theory. And over <laughs> the last couple of decades, it's it's gained in, in um, you know, I don't know, gravitas, I guess. And that, you know, maybe some dementia disorders, especially Parkinson's uh, and maybe Alzheimer's, where er the, the, so a step back, early signs of many diseases that produce dementia are a loss of olfactory ability. And, and it can vary a little bit depending on which disease it is, but it's not really diagnostic because you also lose your sense of smell, it decreases with age, and the, the, we don't have tests that are specific enough that can tell us, okay, this, this particular loss is an indicator of this kind of degeneration. So it's something that olfactory neuroscientists know. And so, so this theory that you know maybe you get a viral insult to the olfactory bulb and 10 or 20 years later, you have dementia. Um, because what happens is this degeneration in many cases starts in the olfactory bulb. If you look, you know, early on, early degeneration versus late degeneration, there appears, especially in many types of Parkinson's disease, to be a gradient that starts in the olfactory bulb. And it proceeds very quickly into the limbic system because these it's one synapse from the olfactory bulb into the hippocampal areas and you know, direct projections into the amygdala. Um, and so this degeneration can proceed directly into areas that are crucial for maintaining cognitive health, mm -hmm. like things like memory and being able to structure your knowledge and knowing where you are and, and you know, emotional state and things like this. And so you know, there was this idea that, well, maybe it was a virus that infected and then over time caused degeneration and a chain reaction. And, you know, but to test that, we need a whole bunch of people infected with a virus through the nose all at once, like, you know, say half a billion or a billion people, which is what we have. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, we, we may, you know, learn the answer to this question really by experience. And let's see. So, so there are a couple of animal models that have tested this and, and one seeded uh, alpha misfolded alpha synuclein into the olfactory bulb in a mouse model. And, and it, you know, it proceeded in a kind of a prion like way to change. Not only it induced misfolding in the olfactory bulb, but then extended into other parts of the limbic system. So this as a model for how the degeneration seen in Lewy body disease, for example, could spread from the olfactory bulb into other areas. So this is concerning. And so um, concerning to me is 
long-term olfactory dysfunction, but it may also be really mild. It may not even be noticeable. And so th this worries me about what's coming possibly in 10 to 20 years. It's not going to be everybody. You know, it's going to be a small percent of mm -hmm. people who have damage to the olfactory bulb. But a small percent of a billion people is is a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically what you're saying is that we have animal experiments that suggest that if you have a problem like the misfolding in the olfactory bulb, you can have direct consequences on, yeah. on the limbic system. And then I think coupled with this also, I think there are like some statistics re regarding to, you know, flu epidemics, et cetera, yeah. associated with an increased number of, of cases in, in Alzheimer later on. So, so yes, but yeah. of course we're like, I think also what concerns you is that we're kind of in the middle of an experiment that we don't know exactly where it, where it ends. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, yes, we may have reached in some sense endemic status where we're simply living with this disease, but I don't trust COVID. Um, I, it's not a normal flu and it does things to blood vessels and neurons and other kinds of cells that really are kind of beyond the scope of what people have seen for a normal, you know, respiratory virus. And so this is what concerns me even more. I mean, yes, if we had a giant influenza epidemic that that hit a billion people the way COVID has, we'd also be concerned. But but this I, I think, you know, we know that this virus causes multiple sort of catastrophic dysfunction in cells. And so that's, you know, worries me that it it's gonna be a bigger effect than than, you know, later on than something like influenza. Yeah. And I think that the biggest worry is also this um unpredictability you know the individual yeah. responses you know like some people just take it away with no problem and then others develop long covid which is a real thing you know yeah. and and, yeah. and you don't know why this person versus this person it, it it sounds familiar to me with regards to the to the opiate epidemic where suddenly someone can die on on an, on a drug dose that wasn't so dangerous the day before or some people are more vulnerable than others yeah which yeah. is actually the big problem is the individual variability. So yeah, Leslie, why don't we start actually talking more about your actual passion for olfaction, you know? Why, yeah. why is it olfaction so important for the control of emotion and higher brain function? Because I think, uh, you know, your worries comes from the fact that olfactory, olfaction is directly linked to higher brain function and, 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 and also to uh, emotional, the limbic system. And, and why don't you begin by explaining to us, you know, like what are the important anatomical projections? You know, what are the areas connected via the obey uh, olfactory bulb? And then I was very intrigued by your, your statement that it mirrors, for example, the dorsal thalamus and thalamic yeah. reticular nucleus, which is kind of the gateway of sensory input to the brain, you know? So right, right. let me talk, <laughs> let's talk about this. Yes. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, olfaction is just cool because it, it's sort of as humans, it's it's really hard for us to understand odors and talk about them. And, and one of those reasons may be this separation between the olfactory system and the other senses. The olfactory system is really part of the limbic system. It used to be called the rhinencephalon, um, the olfactory system together with the limbic system and a couple of other areas, basically, you know, the, the smell brain. 
And, and it is in fact the smell brain. Uh, there are monosynaptic projections into the amygdala, the entorhinal cortex, and the entorhinal projections are, the olfactory bulb projections are onto the uh, stellate cells that project directly into the hippocampus. So it's one synapse into the, you know, sort of seat of cognition. And the amygdala, I mean, I hate this sort of parcelization of function because we know it involves lots of brain areas, but degeneration of the hippocampus and degeneration of the amygdala areas can cause really severe cognitive and emotional deficits. So yes, it's separate from, from the um, other senses, but it's, it's integrated much more in a much more basic fashion with the limbic system than other senses are. In other senses, it's many more steps before you get into these areas. And the, the circuitry of the olfactory bulb and, and is in fact almost identical to this combined circuitry of the dorsal thalamus and the, um, and the thalamic reticular nucleus. Murray Sherman and I published a paper on this back in 2008, I think, or seven in tins. And, you know, if you look at the circuit and you look at the, the, where the uh, neuromodulator inputs come in and everything, it's really uh, sort of scarily identical to the point where I said, well, maybe every neural circuit is like this. And it turns out it's not. Um, and so I think that, that, you know, in evolution, it evolved separately from the rest of the thalamus. And so the olfactory system really produced its own thalamus. But why, you know, so olfaction then is sort of in the middle of our cognitive structure, but not something we have a lot of cognition about. And yeah, so exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. what makes it really cool. It's sort of a silent partner. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think you know, like the thalamus, you know, has been implicated in in the control of consciousness. You know, like if you yeah. read papers like from Rodolfo Linas, uh, right? It's really a important, important, important structure, and. Uh, and I think for for the olfaction, it could also be interesting. I mean, like you you have beautiful work done on the role of uh, breathing and the sniffing, you know, yeah. and controlling uh, uh, cortical states. And I think if people think about you know meditation, emotions, etc., I yeah. think uh, there is an important yeah. link again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know, maybe it's sort of a, an extra layer of consciousness, um, you know, and particularly nasal breathing. And you know, mm -hmm. there's more and more evidence. Um, that nasal breathing in particular is important for organizing memory. Um, not not that there are some um, studies that that argue against this, so I wouldn't say it's completely sewed up. But we find in our work in rats, there's lots of evidence that respiratory rhythms, in fact, engage every area of the brain we record from, depending on the circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and so it you know sort of it gates it well it's in a position to gate information flow within the circuit or to gate um, states of the brain and so right the, this respiratory drive is is really an essential part and the olfactory bulb neurons are have really really high firing rates for cortical neurons I mean that's part of mm -hmm. the it's part of the forebrain but these neurons fire at baseline 10 to 20 hertz and burst up to 50 or 60 hertz uh, you know for in a sniff and th this is you know this is constant activity that's fed into all the parts of the limbic system all these parts get 
this constant background excitation. If you take it away, those parts don't function right. So this is something <laughs> that Walter Freeman did back in the 1960s. He, you know, bulbect basically cut the olfactory tract, so the olfactory bulb input to piriform cortex is missing. And if you do a shock stimulus to the remaining olfactory tract, the piriform cortex does not respond like it's supposed to. It'll increase in excitation, then just come back down without oscillating like it normally does. <laughs> if you mm -hmm. if you replace that missing activity with just some high frequency, low level stimulation, then pause it and do another shock stimulus, you get back the oscillation. So fascinating. So this, you know, and I think people are also really not totally aware that, you know, like our brain takes apart, you know, the outside world all the time, you know, like the acoustic, the olfactory stream and everything. And mm -hmm. then the brain has to bring it all together to create timing and, and synchrony, et cetera. And so, so it seems like a lot of those rhythms uh, require this, this olfactory kind of input to generate yeah. the timing and the processing, which which I think is, is yeah. totally fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and more and more research from my lab, from uh, Adriano Tort's lab, Detlef Hex. Yes, lab. I love this. You know, we, we've all been showing that respiratory activity is in the hippocampus and oh, theta rhythms are in the olfactory bulb. And so these rhythms are gating activity you know, states, cortical states on an ongoing basis all the time. And the, and you know, the, the human system is not very different from that in a rat or a mouse. It's one of the most conserved circuitries uh, among sensory systems. So suggest that it's, it's important for something besides smelling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, like, I, I think that the fact that people underestimate kind of that the input from the olfactory bulb versus the thalamus is, is also that humans are not so smell people like, like, like smell uh, animals compared to, let's say a dog, you know, like, I mean, yeah, if, yeah. You, if yeah. you take a dog on a walk, it is so fascinating to see them, you know, like with their nose down and, and you know exactly that they're in a different world right now, the, yeah. the experiencing the past, the present, whereas we kind of like, only get alerted if there's a smell bad, uh, a bad smell or something like this. Yeah, so I yeah. Think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we think we don't care about smell, but in fact, <laughs> yes, in fact, we spend about worldwide about $40 billion a year on perfumes, you know, and that doesn't include, <laughs> exactly. that doesn't include air fresheners and, and, you know, scented toilet paper and things like that. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't think it does include those, but, but we care a lot about smell. We just mm -hmm. don't think we do. Yeah, in the unconscious state, absolutely, yeah. yes, uh huh, F totally. And now, uh, so we talked really about the important physiological, the anatomical connection, and uh, and there was just a recently published article by Fabrizio Esposito and and coworkers from the University of Naples, where they uh, published like olfactory loss in the brain connectivity after COVID. Now, how does this report really fit with your prediction? Because you 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 made this prediction before these data came in? Yeah. So a couple of things. So, so one of the, so to back up a little, you know, I, so I was sort of had convinced myself that since the virus couldn't get into the olfactory nerve, that maybe we were okay, but I kept following the research and I kept not sleeping very well. And I, 
you know, reading more and more. And I have to say, once I published this paper, I've slept better because I, I, I let everybody else know. But it, I'm still worried. But the, the thing that really worried me, so before this study that you were talking about was the UK Biobank study, which I came know. out a few months ago. And what they did, so this is an ongoing study of biological measures, looking at aging and other things and population in the UK you know, thousands and thousands of people. And a subset of those people, they're doing brain imaging every couple of years. And so they had a cohort of people who had had scans and then COVID hit, and then they came in for their next round of scans. And in that time, they, they some of them had had COVID, mostly mild COVID. And so they looked at their brains to see if there were degenerative changes. Now the scanning they were doing did not optimize olfactory areas. So what they did was they looked at, and these are structural scans. Um, mm. They looked at the you know, characteristics of areas connected to the olfactory system. So areas that get input from piriform cortex and they found what looked like early degenerative changes in areas specifically connected to piriform cortex. And in the cerebellum, um, I think it's Chris 2A, if I remember, I might not be remembering that correctly, uh, an area that's involved in olfactory um, cognition also showed changes. And that was the change there was correlated with changes in executive function that would be related to that area. Wow. So this, and the average time from COVID infection and, and they even taking out people who had severe cases and were hospitalized, just looking at people who had mild cases, same results. And, you know, that's only an average of about five months since having COVID. So oh, it, the man. effects are small, but it means that already there are some changes. So this paper that you're talking about, um, I did have a chance to look, I hadn't seen it and I did have a chance to read it. And, but I, I can't say that I'm I'm an expert on it, but they are showing differences. And I don't know how those are going to play out, but definitely differences in functional connectivity between anterior piriform cortex and and other parts of the brain and 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 within anterior piriform cortex. So definitely there are changes and it may be that these are compensatory changes that just route mm -hmm. around things. I don't. I mean, we really just have to follow it. I mean, this is, you know, everything I see suggests that, you know, we need a lot of research to, yes. to see, to follow people over time, to see what these changes are. Yeah. And, and definitely, you know, seeing differences in connectivity suggests that there might be, you know, changes that are uh, forcing those. Like if you're not getting enough in drive from the olfactory bulb, you have to, you know, the brain is, you know, creates, home, you know, mechanisms to promote homeostasis, right? So it'll, mm -hmm. it'll, you know, get excitation from other places. Hopefully that's what they're seeing. Yeah, that it's, yeah. it's a way of, you know, sort of recovering activity, but we won't know for a long time. But but bringing us back to this this concept that we're really in the middle of a big experiment and and mm. uh, and maybe also part of the explanation why there will be individual variabilities where some people can homeostatically compensate others not and and depending yeah. on all the different things but but at the same time you know like one of the good things about science is that 
we can use our understanding to maybe have some preventative uh, measures and and yeah. you talk about the enriched environment i think this is something that is worth now on the positive note like what what do you yeah. recommend you what know? do i recommend first of all i'm not that kind of doctor so, <laughs> so no. i have to say that i'm not giving medical advice um yes but uh we know that particularly olfactory systems and the hippocampus are very plastic, um, that there's a lot of plasticity in there, whether it's growing new neurons, you know, enhancing uh, the role of astrocytes, um, all kinds of things can change about these systems on, you know, momentary and also long-term basis just by using them. Right. And this was work starting back in also the 1960s from Marion Diamond and Mark Rosenzweig showed that using the hippocampus or using, sorry, not the hippocampus, but using the brain in an enriched way, uh, you know, putting rats in enriched environments where they have other rats and lots of things to play with and changing things from, from time to time so they have to learn new things resulted in thicker cortex. And that thicker cortex was not because they grew new cells, they grew new glial cells. Um, and we now know that glial cells are an active part of, of neuronal regulation and response. So in effect, using, using your brain, doing all the stuff that they tell us to do, which is like, do crossword puzzles and exercise <laughs> and you know all the, all the things that sound kind of low tech and fun, you know, probably will show an effect. And we know that in, in rodents, if we expose animals to continued changing odors, that in fact, olfactory bulbs get bigger. Mm -hmm. um, and this is sort of the philosophy behind smell training. And it's really the only therapy available for people who have long-term anosmia and, you know, due to any reason. And it, you know, we haven't, had enough studies. We haven't had enough large studies that test how well it works and whether we have the right parameters. But basically it's smelling things that you recognize that you used to know what they smell like if you can't smell and smelling them for a few minutes, a couple times a day and thinking about what they smelled like before. Yeah. And it's really super low tech and it's probably not optimized and it only works in about 25 to 50% of people depending on the study but that's that's what we that's what we have but we also know the system's really plastic so it makes sense that something like this should work but we we really we need better studies and we need better tools to mobilize plasticity to compensate for mm -hmm. for loss yeah but i think that the the interesting kind of like novel concept that you're proposing is that you know, we all know enriched environment and think about, you know, like movement, moving through obstacle, experience different things. But I think that the, the idea to to train your olfactory bulb kind of like yeah. as, as part of this repertoire to enrich your environment and, and thereby increase yeah. cognition is, I think, novel. And, yeah. and, 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 and or maybe not novel for you, but I think for, for most people. And I think that's really an interesting concept, uh, given that what we know about the importance of the olfactory bulb. So, I th yeah. 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 In fact, I keep, you know, a few kitchen spices and a little perfume bottle 
on my kitchen counter. When I walk by, I just smell them. Uh, figure it couldn't yeah. hurt and it smells nice. So, you know, you know, and, and who knows, you know, like I mean, we're losing this, you know, we're yeah. losing this. If you if yeah. you go to these supermarkets, they don't smell like this. If you go to India into a into a real farmer's yeah. market, you know, where you have all these uh, spices. Uh, smells, oh, spices, you know, I think maybe uh, we're in, um, removing enrichment in our life by yeah. by using this, you know, or, yeah. uh, or the smell of bakeries in Germany. You know, I mean, it's a yeah, I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, there are there are lots, you know, I don't I'm not an expert in this, but in, in smell training, but there are protocols that you can look up and and, and there are groups like STANA, which is the Smell and Taste uh, Association of North America. Um, they have information on smell loss. Um, it's a patient advocacy group. Mm -hmm. And in the UK, there's an organization called ABSENT, A-B-S-C-E-N-T, and another one called The Fifth Sense that mm -hmm. have also information on smell loss. Uh, yeah, but I think even for the normal person, I think that's the the, yeah. the beauty about your concept is we have to to change our concept about, you know, uh, uh, an olfactory environment, you know, an enriched olfactory environment. And, you know, like if you think about the, the American cheeses, they don't smell at all. Yeah. You know, like they're like um, yogurts don't smell, nothing smells and it's avoided that they smell. Whereas if you go into other countries, you know, yeah. I think the enrichment is much stronger and give it if it really has a huge impact effect on our you know consciousness and yeah. processing higher brain function we're depriving our our people yeah. here <laughs> yeah and in fact you know there's there's a good argument uh lucer jacobs has an argument that uh mm. smell is a scaffold for space uh ah, and good. that um and that you know it evolved in fish right where space is different for fish if you're in a moving body of water place is not a GPS coordinates. And so part of that, the identity of place is this convergence of smells, of smell cues. And mm. an olfactory bulb is is preserved evolutionarily in ways that that are consistent with that, the size of the olfactory bulb relative to other structures. And so, okay. mm -hmm. so it suggests that, you know, our apparatus for smelling is not just for smelling. It's about yeah, but orientation, our identity and, and place in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Especially, you know, like the role of the hippocampus in, in, in space recognition and, and right. orientation. So beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Hey, Leslie, important take-home messages. I think we gave them a lot. To this yeah, aspect, yeah. But maybe uh, to sum it up, what, what do you think yeah. would be good to, to convey yeah. here? I would say that, you know, I mean, people ask me, oh, should I just give up now since I had COVID and I can't smell? I would say no, <laughs> uh, uh, because it's going to be a small percent. It's just that a small percent of a billion people is a lot of people. You know, 1% mm -hmm. of a billion is 10 million. And so it's it's really just about numbers you know that the chances are i think are greater of having cognitive deficit because of what covid does to cells mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily if you have smell loss you're going to have dementia i think it's that we have to be mindful of what's going on and invest not only in you know personal habits but also in real research to figure this out you know mm -hmm. to it's a disaster, you know, the pandemic is really a disaster on, on so many levels, but it's also yeah. an opportunity 
to understand uh, cognition and understand dementia and maybe find cures uh, yeah. for dementia over the next decade or two. Um, at least test a, a lot more hypotheses. And so, you know, more research money into the olfactory system's role in cognitive health, I think is gonna help a lot and just, you know, sort of shotgun approach to, to treating loss of smell and, and effects on cognition. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, I mean, this is really a really interesting time uh, of, yeah. of, of this big experiment. And, and I, I hope that uh, science can be used to, you know, to influence it and, I think in the meantime, you know, let's go to farmer's market and enjoy <laughs> smells and think that it helps our cognition, you know. Or yeah, it's, it's not going to hurt. It's not <laughs> going to hurt as long as you don't smell toxic stuff, you know. Oh, my God. Yes, yeah. exactly. But you have <laughs> developed the smell also to avoid the toxic smell. Right, so, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. it's part of this whole repertoire that we're uh, really uh, using, probably in a many cases unconsciously, but it's it's in there. So yeah. Leslie, I did, I did, of course, expect when I talk to you that it will be a big, big topic, you know, so yeah. many, many thanks for this uh, wonderful uh, review. And of course, we look forward to more of your reviews and, yeah. and, Thank and you. hope that, that the world becomes aware of the importance of olfaction. So yeah, it's, it's uh, been a pleasure to work on it, if not sort of a nightmare. And so I apologize no. for the nightmare aspects, but I think we all need to pay attention. All right. Thank you very much, Leslie. All the best and uh, keep healthy. So you too. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.